This is stage three of uh, development on site at Takanini Town Centre. Um, stage two kind of came about when the land was rezoned for, um, for retail use and uh, the warehouse came knocking on the door at that juncture wanting to relocate. Um, stage three was kind of a, you know, a similar story um, with council wanting to locate their, their local library here with us. Um, and stage three uh, is, uh, really came about as a result of uh, interest from Silky Otter Cinemas. Um, that, that coupled with uh, some demographic research that we had done that showed that this area was really lacking in a high quality food and beverage offer. So we knew that if we could, if we could get a, a great entertainment offer like Silky Otter, we could pair that with um, you know, strong food and beverage, great restaurants. Um, we'd have a successful mix for stage three. I spoke to Derby Square Project Director James Commode about the plans for the new development in Takanini. We started by discussing some of the demographic research that was completed for the project. I mean that was done by um, Property Economics um, and it was one of the first things that I did when I started a couple of years ago, right? Because you, you, you have to understand your customer. Um, if you don't understand your customer, um, you're going to make all sorts of unwise decisions um, in terms of you know, development and retail mix. So that's the first thing that we did. Um, and it told us, it told us a, a, you know, a few things, um, and a, you know, a few that you'd probably guess, but a, and a few that were surprising. We've got a really um, kind of diverse mix of people um, within our catchment. The thing that was surprising was that we're actually We've got a higher um, sort of high to medium household income above sort of 100 to 150 thousand dollars a year. We've actually got a higher portion of that than the Auckland average, um, and 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 also kind of a high number of occupants per household and a lower average age. All of that told us that um, we've got a lot of families, um, and it's it's kind of middle New Zealand. I guess the, the, the reality is that this part of Auckland's been growing so fast that, uh, and they've been so starved of quality options that, um, that yes, there is enough demand within our catchment for this use. Um, like, I mean, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but if, if, you, if you were within our, within our catchment area, there's probably another 40 or 50 houses where a new family's moving in, so you're every week so your, your, your density of catchment population is actually growing all the time and therefore you know the spending power within that catchment is growing. So um, I guess you've got to look at kind of that macro level but you've also got to look at that microeconomic level too. We're developing it with, uh, there'll be an uh, eight screen Silky Otter Cinema Complex um, which is going to sit uh, at level one, access via stairs and escalators. Uh, there'll be a 1,200 square metre um, arcading entertainment use on the ground floor that sits behind the restaurants. And then there'll be five restaurants that um, all face out and spill out onto our town square that we're developing. Um, and then there's the town square, so that's a, you know, a landscaped area that's open and available for public use um, and really is the is designed to become the heart to our local community.
While some of these spaces were already spoken for, James tells me negotiations to lease the remaining spaces in the complex are ongoing. We've got um, uh, three of them that are fully leased uh, and uh, three that are in negotiations of the seven spaces, yeah. But questions remain about the local demand for these hospitality offerings and whether there will be enough foot traffic. We've had a lot of um, feedback, um, uh, you know, across social media channels and all sorts. Um, and when we actually announced the development, there was a lot of enthusiasm from, uh, from the local community for what we're building. I mean, you can see the car park today, it's just about full and it's a, it's a Monday. James refers to the busy car park for the existing retail and services precinct, the Takanini Town Centre. I think they think that, um, that the customers out here don't demand or deserve a quality product. James believes there are misconceptions about consumers in South Auckland. They develop with that in mind um, and we've got a really clear vision, we've had it from the very beginning, that we, we're not going to compromise on the quality of our development. So all our architectural you know, treatment of all of our buildings is second to none. Um, and it's the same for stage three. So architecturally, it's going to be a, a, an amazing development. Um, but that, that same strength of vision is, is going to flow through to our occupier vision as well. We're going to be uncompromising for um, wanting to deliver quality outcomes for our customer out here. I question if he thinks property developers continue to place too much focus on traditionally affluent areas such as the North Shore. In reality, I think that's probably changing. Um, but, you know, Building infrastructure like this takes a long time and uh, and really like we're taking a, a lead role in it um, because uh, you know the owners of, of the site are locally based, they're embedded within the community, so they know it and understand it and probably knew and understood what was happening here before um, a lot of the large scale, potentially corporate um, property investors did. I also asked James about public transport in the local area and whether it needs to build up to meet demand. You're, you're um, I mean, there's, there's the shortage of infrastructure investment um, within New Zealand as a whole and Auckland specifically for transport is kind of pretty well evidenced and I don't think, um, you know, this part of Auckland's really different to anywhere else. We could do with, um, uh, you, know, you know, better connection from a public transport perspective, um, uh, you know, likewise, um, investment in high quality roading around here as well. Um, it's, it's just got to keep up with the, it's got to keep up with the growth. They've gone through an electrification process obviously from Papakura all the way through to Pukekohe. Um, so I think that works largely complete. Um, and they're going to be operating those electric trains pretty soon. And then there are they are actually putting in new trains, two new train stations between Papakura and Pukekohe as well. Um, so I think that that with that will come better reliability. James explains Derby Square is targeting local residents as opposed to drawing people out from the city. We understand that um, you know our local community live here, and generally they work in this region as well. Um, so then there's, there is, there is a, you know, there's a lot of people that vary to that, that, that are probably travelling up the motorway five days a week to go to work um, and come, you know, they'll be coming home and on the weekends they've got no interest in travelling up the motorway again so they need, again, they need that quality offer on their doorstep. 
He says Derby Square's offering has been carefully considered. We spent a lot of time at the beginning of the process um, you know, studying you know, best practice entertainment and dining precincts and, and what, they, what they look like and what they offer. Um, and we always wanted this to be a comprehensive offer. Um, so we didn't just want it to be cinemas within entertainment or just arcading and entertainment. Um, we really want it to be both those things um, that are very much complementary. Um, and it's the same within, uh, within the restaurant space as well, really determined in, in terms of making sure we get quality operators. Um, and then, you know, it's understanding their concept that they want to bring um, to Derby Square uh, and ensuring that, you know, we minimise that menu overlap between operators as well. We wanted to have a, like, a clear identity for the stage development on site. Um, and actually the town square will be known as Derby Square. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's kind of a small nod to the history of the site. So, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, you know, racing horses were actually, thoroughbreds were trained on site here. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a nod to the history. Despite challenges for the construction and property sectors, the multi-year development has been largely unaffected by recent headwinds such as material shortages. We have not not within probably the usual ones that you'd expect. Um, I think I think some of those those shortages that existed, um, you know, two years ago have have, um, have resolved themselves. Um, so no, we haven't had any kind of major. Uh, construction challenges driven by shortages of supply. So what gives James confidence that this development will work here and now? Because of who our customer is. Um, you know, our customer's not too different to the customer that you find further up the motorway. Um, they just haven't been, they haven't been well serviced. So um, yeah, we're really confident that, you know, the demographics within our catchment will support the use of this nature. This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. To look at the economic year in review and whether it panned out as predicted, we're joined by HSBC Chief Economist Paul Bloxham. So what went right and what went wrong, Paul? Well, some things went right and some things went wrong. The, the main thing that we were forecasting for New Zealand uh, this year was that you would have a, quite a substantial slowdown in growth and that you would likely tip into a recession around the turn of the year. And that proved to be the case. We did actually see two consecutive quarters of, of negative GDP. And so that was, that was part of what we, what we had anticipated. Actually, overall, the growth story has turned out to be roughly as we expected. What, when, what we didn't see or what we didn't expect was to see quite as much persistence in inflation. So although demand is weakening, I guess the, the way we would see it is the supply side of the economy actually didn't improve quite as fast as we would have thought. So the supply side of the economy was constrained more than we thought for longer. We ended up with inflation that has been a bit stickier, a bit more persistent. And as a result of that, we, we've also seen more uh, tightening from the RBNZ than we had thought at the beginning of the year. So we got to a peak on the we're at we're at a cash rate of five and a half percent. We were we, we thought the peak might be closer to four and a half at the beginning of the year. 
that turned out to be it turned out to be the case that the supply side of the economy uh, was less flexible or, or recovered less quickly than we thought. Inflation proved to be a bit higher than we thought. Another part of that story was that the unemployment rate uh, has risen, but it's actually risen by less than we thought. So I would say a part of this was that you reopened the border, but didn't quite get that influx of workers as quickly as we had anticipated would have happened. Um, and that gave us a bit more sticky inflation combined with a, a weaker supply side that then meant that our, uh, the RBNZ actually did more in terms of lifting rates than we, we, we had thought they would. They got to five and they've gotten to five and a half. So you removed your prediction for a 25 basis point hike. Why? Well, so we, as we talk, head to, headed towards the end of the year, uh, we, we were concerned that in this, this sticky inflation that we'd seen and the, the more constrained supply side might persist a bit longer. Uh, but uh, we've been sort of reassured somewhat by the fact that we saw uh, uh, some lo- more loosening in the labour market in the last numbers that we got for the, third, for the third quarter. So the unemployment rate rose a bit more than we expected. And that third quarter inflation print, which also surprised uh, to the downside us and the market, as well as the RBNZ. So we think that's going to be enough to convince the RBNZ that they won't have to lift rates any further. And that's our view, uh, that, they, that this will turn out to be the peak for the, for the RBNZ's cash rate. But at the same time, as we look into next year, I guess the question is going to be how quickly does inflation come back down? Does it get... How quickly does it get back to their target? And and with that in mind, we don't think that we should expect cuts um, anytime soon. We, we don't have cuts in for the RBNZ until right at the tail end of, of, of 2024. What surprised you about unemployment over 2023? Well, I think what, when we look back at the numbers, what we've seen is a, a, a less rapid rise in the unemployment rate than we had expected. We, we thought that the, the slowdown in growth, which I think we got pretty close to the mark, um, would deliver a more rapid loosening of the labour market. Now, what we'd always had in mind that that was that that wouldn't necessarily reflect large scale layoffs or, you know, much, much weaker demand for workers, but rather what it would reflect is that we'd see a much larger influx of workers. So the inward migration story would drive uh, a pickup in availability of workers, a boost to the supply side, and that that would see the unemployment rate climb by more. Now, I guess where it gets into nuance is we have actually seen that happen. It's just happened by less and less quickly than we, we had anticipated. And then to add another layer of nuance, um, it came a little bit later, but we are now seeing quite a large influx of workers and a large boost to inward migration. So as we look into 2024, uh, this is becoming, you know, it's it's just that the, the, what we expected arrived a little bit, has arrived seemingly a bit later than we had previously anticipated. How much weight should be put on economic forecasts such as yourselves when we've had COVID and recently the election? Oh, look, we, we all need to put together forecasts so we can make plans in life. That's what we do. That's what forecasting's all about. But at the same time, it's very difficult, of course, to forecast. There's a lot of uncertainty around them. So, I mean, I, primarily what you do is you put together a set of forecasts and then you spend a lot of time, you should spend a lot of time, uh, talking about, thinking about and gaming out the risks around that set of forecasts and then coming up with various scenarios as to how it might play out differently. And that is how I think that you should mostly treat the forecasts. They're guideposts and then you, you set scenarios around them and you try to understand the risks around them. Are the risks tilted to the upside or the downside? And then how should you think about those risks and then as time goes by, as you get more and more information, 
you start to then game out whether you are on a particular pathway, the original pathway, or whether you're whether one of the risks played out a bit differently. And that's that's how. So you use them as a tool, really, rather than necessarily feeling like that central forecast that you've got, that point estimate is is definitely what's going to happen. It's more a tool for thinking about how you, how you should plan for the future. And to back up your opinion, do you think the new selected price indexes from StatsNZ works in your favour? Well, that's right. So um, we're, we're looking at everything that's available. I mean, that's, that's what we take all of the information that we can possibly absorb and try to add that together to come up with a view as to what's going on. And I guess, you know, you set out a, a set of forecasts based on the pathway of the existing data and also a sort of a, a sense of how the economy is travelling, not just locally, but globally as well. And then a, a, a set of models that drive that based on historical patterns that you can you can observe. And then what you do is you track all the information you possibly can in a timely way to see whether you're on that path or not, and then make incremental adjustments as you need to. And fit that into that risk profile. So yes, absolutely. If we get more information, if we get more timely information, we try to feed it in. I guess the only trade-off that we need to keep in mind is for more, when information becomes more timely and more, and it, it can often also contain a lot more noise. So it doesn't necessarily all contain, contain signal. Uh, it can often contain noise. So you've got to be careful to work out which bit of the, uh, of the new information is noise and which bit of the information is signal. And that's, that's the art. As it, as it were, of, of reading the economic statistics and incorporating them into a view as to how the economy is travelling and how it's likely to, where it's likely to go from here. And overall, the data shows an underlying resilience in the New Zealand economy, Paul. So I, I think in some dimension that's true. I, I think growth, as I say, has weakened roughly as we had sort of expected. It, it's not, not been that different. Um, um, but um, you, 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 the labour market has certainly been a bit more resilient than was expected. The unemployment rate hasn't climbed as much. Um, you know, so, so I think there are, there are some things that, are, that, that look about as expected and some things that have been uh, uh, different. Um, in terms of looking forward and thinking about where we're travelling, I, I think the, disin- the economy is disinflating, and this has been the primary objective that the RBNZ has had, that policymakers have had, to try to get inflation to come down. And in the last couple of months, we've got more clarity that that's actually going on, that that, that, that disinflationary pathway is, seems to be the pathway that the New Zealand economy is on. Paul Bloxham, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The city's big tech players, along with Tataki Auckland Unlimited, the council's economic development agency and the government, have long been working on a plan to create high-paying jobs by bringing investment and talent into the city. How is this plan tracking? Tataki's head of tech and innovation, Marissa Brindley, joins us to explain the plans in train. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, this has been going for a few years now. Can we just give us a sort of a quick update on where things are at? Sure. So Tech Tamaki Makoto, which is our three-year plan uh, that we've developed with industry to um, really, in a colloquial term, go hard on tech, uh, was born um, out of the COVID uh, period. We had convened business leaders from across the city together uh, in August 2020 to talk to them about post-COVID recovery. Where should we be focusing our time? What were the key challenges and opportunities? And we heard from leaders that 
the the growth of the tech industry and and its resilience in spite of uh, economic circumstances um, continue to rise, and that we should really look to to go hard on tech, get in behind tech, and really help to accelerate um, Auckland as a tech and innovation city. So in 2021, we worked with tech leaders from across the city to understand from them, well, what were the key focus areas, and out of that was that the programme was born, and we continue to work with industry to, to deliver it. What are the next sort of big hurdles or the big aims that you've got? Sure. So in year one, we really focused around, um, you know, industry told us that talent is still a key issue for them. And it's twofold, you know, a short-term need of senior roles to fill, senior hard-to-fill roles, um, but also that long-term piece around uh, increasing diversity into the skills base. So we know we have 180 different ethnicities here in Auckland. We're fourth most diverse city in the world. And we know our future workforce will be Māori and Pacifica and youthful. So we're looking at the long-term plans of how we increase uh, more uh, diversity into the tech industry whilst filling that near-term need through attracting you know, great people over to Auckland. I can imagine there's, there'd be some people who would say, well, good companies do that themselves. Why do we need the council to be involved in this kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, large employers, absolutely. Uh, they will have the capacity, they will have the people and the budget to go out and attract talent. But it creates an inequity. So some of our smaller startups do need that level of support. Uh, we know, we hear directly from industry, they're out there communicating, doing business overseas and still you know, promoting Auckland as a tech and innovative city is important to them. That helps them uh, in terms of attracting investment and talent. So that's part of the role that we can play as a city to really help tell that story and I guess help to um, address some of that tall poppy syndrome where people don't want to be out there shouting, well, we can do that for them. Mm. Of course, we are in competition with many other cities around mm. the world. You've been around the world and looked at a few of these. What what were some of the sort of examples by which you were sort of guiding this project? Yeah, I think the biggest example that I saw is the, it is the storytelling. Uh, in Sydney, um, the Greater Cities Commission has come together and so they tell this wonderful story of their um, of Tech Central, and what they've done with Tech Central is it covers six kilometres of Sydney's CBD, and by covering that scale, they then roll it up into six neighbourhoods, and then roll up the numbers. So they're telling that cohesive uh, Tech Central story really well. And actually, what struck me when I was watching it and hearing about it, it's it's no different to Auckland scale. Yes you know, slightly different, but actually the story and the messaging is no different. I started to realise that's where we really need to come together and tell that collective story as opposed to focusing on smaller pockets and and hubs on their own. Uh, we might tell the Great Auckland story on its own, we might tell the Outset Ventures story or the university. Actually, that need to tell the cohesive story um, is certainly important. They would have more money, though, wouldn't they? They do, yes. And I understand Brisbane is another one. Yeah, Brisbane. uh, So we're a sister city with Brisbane. So we were over there uh, and seeing, you know, the work that they're doing around attracting tech and innovation. A lot of affirmation we found, you know, hubs that are very similar to the hubs that we have here. Um, But interesting, um, you know, how they are uh, getting in behind... um, 
different levels of entrepreneurs, that city investment remains at large. Um, so lots of, of long-term focus there, which is what we're also you know, focusing on um, as well as the long-term piece. These aren't sort of quick wins over a year. It's, it's a long-term economic transformational piece. Mm. Um, I mean, is tech too amorphous a phrase? Nowadays we talk about mm. deep tech and med tech and, and mm. that fintech and so forth. You know, is, is there a case to sort of break it down and be more specific and niche? I, I think so. Look, tech's an enabler. So tech's in every industry, mm. whether it's enabler, and obviously it's its own industry of itself. Uh, so where the real importance is, is breaking it down into those subsectors where we have real sort of um, comparative advantage um, or huge potential. And so we're seeing that around agri-tech, fintech, um, medtech has huge potential. Um, we have two large firms there with Fisher and Paykel Healthcare and Orion, but 200 startups coming in underneath. If we get them behind and scale those startups, we have more potential, you know, large firms to come out and large employers. Uh, the same with the aerospace industry. Um, you know, I think New Zealand launches the fourth most rockets in the world behind, you know, the US and China and Russia. So, you know, we really are punching above our weight there. So some of these key clustering areas are where we're getting in behind. You know, we we launched and, and helped bring together Aerospace Auckland last year and we're seeing that grow and thrive and create that exciting community. And we're also working with University of Auckland to look at how we start to build that med tech cluster. How do you cope with the changing political environment I mean without talking about specific mayors but you do have this three year mm. cycle that you have to deal with and every mayor has his or her own mm-hmm. idea of how things should go how do you address that or cope with that yeah sure I think t- for me it's about working with industry so we're hearing the industry voice and I think you'd struggle in a political environment not to listen to industry so we're guided uh, in that sense um, and I think you know, the rise of tech and innovation, it's its not going away. It's going to increase more and more in focus. So from that sense, yes, things can change, but it remains a priority uh, for us. I've been involved in growing tech economies for 20 years now over in the UK and New Zealand. This continues to rise. It's, it's, it's not going despite, you know, varying political environments. That's great. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. Thank you.